Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Book and Film Globe podcast. I am your host, Neil Pollock, the editor-in-chief of Book and Film Globe, www.bookandfilmglobe.com. Uh, we're very sad at Book and Film Globe this week because one of our valued contributors, both to the website and to this podcast, uh, Daniel Cohen, passed away recently at the age of 40. Daniel had been sick for uh, a long time, for since before the pandemic. He had a rare autoimmune disorder, and he never fully recovered. But even so, during those years, he wrote about stuff for us and was extremely uh, talented as a writer. And also, he was also my trivia teammate, and he was one of the best trivia players. In the United States, Daniel wrote about... He wrote about Jeopardy a lot for us, and he wrote about food and food TV, and he wrote about all kinds of other stuff. He loved pop culture, and he loved TV, and he loved sports, and he loved life, and it's very sad to see him gone. Uh, Daniel was last on the show. A couple of weeks ago, he talked to me about Telemarketers, the terrific Max documentary uh, that has gotten a lot of attention, You know, and I was looking for someone to talk about the show with, and it occurred to me that Daniel would have watched it, and he'd have some interesting things, and funny, things to say and sure enough he did and that was it wasn't the last time I talked to him I did get to see him at a trivia convention a couple of uh, weeks later and uh, I'm glad I got to see him and play a uh, quiz with him uh, before he passed away so I will miss him he was a good friend of mine and uh, we will miss him at book and film club quite a bit but the show must go on and we have a great one for you this week I'm going to talk to our chief film critic Stephen Garrett about The Creator, a real turkey of a sci-fi movie that has recently opened. And I'm also going to talk to Pablo Gallaga about Fantastic Fest, which is an Austin genre and cult movie festival that he and I both attended recently. And we have a lot of uh, funny and good insights into the world of cult film as it stands now. But first, the WGA strike is over. The Writers Guild have settled and have got an excellent deal from the producers, and there is much rejoicing in Hollywood, and we are going to talk to Rob Kuttner, who has been covering the strike for us over the last few months, right after this musical interlude. Great news, everyone. The WGA strike, the Writers Guild of America strike, has ended, and the writers have entered into what appears to be a terrific deal with the producers, I don't know if it's the producers guild, it's the, the AMTPT, the associate, the associated, I don't know, it's the producers. They entered in to a deal with them and everyone is very excited about it. Our book and film globe strike captain, Rob Kuttner is here to uh, go over the nitty gritty of the, the strike resolution. Rob has been covering the strike for us and he's been on the picket lines in LA most days. Hello, Rob. Captain Kuttner reporting for duty. Yeah, hey, congratulations. This is this is good news all, all across the board. I am also a WGE member, although I've been inactive for several years. So and I and I don't live in California and there weren't any it was too hot in Austin for there to be pickets, but I was kind of watching and I don't think I would have done it anyway because I'm lazy, but I, I watched from afar and I admire the uh, dedication that the guild showed to the strike. I mean, there was a there was a real even more more so than the last time when you and I were both on strike in two thousand and seven. There's much more unified this time. Yeah, totally. I mean, I I take full credit for the resolution, but I will share some of it with the. Um, yeah, I think I feel like they learned some lessons from last time, 
you know, instead of fighting the last war, we're, we're conversely, not to jump ahead, but I feel like the studios were kind of fighting the last war, as they say, the same stuff. And that's why they lost, whereas I feel like the writers learned some lessons about how to stay solid, how to stay unified, and really about how to win the PR war, I think, with the sort of playbook support. And of course, I think without the SAG actors, you know, it would have been a different last time the SAG wasn't out with us. So it was a whole different story. Yeah, it added, it added a little bit of a, I hate to say glamour, but it's true, right? You know, you know, less of that than you would have thought. I was expecting a lot of that as I wrote about for the Globe, but um, I think it was really just the sheer logistics of like you can't make yeah numbers and you can't make the stuff without the actors. Like SAG actually covers SAG actor covers more of entertainment than WGA does, so like more things are affected by it. So the producers were highly incentivized to get back into the room, and you, I think you're right. Uh, the WGA ran a very savvy campaign and i would i mean i wouldn't say it was undidactic i mean it was still a labor action so there was there was still like a lot of the sort of down with capitalism stuff you hear in strikes but it was it was very modern in a lot of ways they they were very smart about how they use twitter um and how about that and, and other uh social media um platforms and the producers just really like everything they said was just so uh tone deaf they were just wrong about everything Whereas in the last strike, I felt like, I mean, yes, the producers were wrong about everything, but I felt like the goals weren't as clearly defined. And, uh, the, you know, it, it just felt a little uh, radical for radical's sake. Whereas this strike, just like every, every note was just perfectly struck. Yeah, I think that, I think there's a lot of things going on. Like one thing is I think that the studios, unlike last time, were part of much bigger enterprises. Like they're, and they were kind of last time, but now they're really part of multimedia, multinational stuff. And they're so detached from the reality that they would just say these things they thought would like, they would cause the peasants to, to quaver in fear. And instead, it came across as bullying and villainous in this almost like two-dimensional way. Like they thought the psyops they were trying to do of like, we don't care, we'll just let them starve out. They thought that would scare us. And in fact, social media amplifies everything like that. And I think we are at kind of a more you know, screw the man time in American culture right now anyway. So it just resonated like that as opposed to last time, it just seemed like an individual fight in one in, in one, in one sector. Yeah, R R rich men north of uh, Coenga. I guess you can't go north of Coenga. Um, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. North of Sunset, yeah. <laughs> rich men north of Sunset. Uh, yeah, so I think you're right. And, you know, so let's let's talk a little bit about what actually uh, was achieved with the deal. So what, so what do you think were the significant concessions that the studios made to the WGA? I mean, obviously it wasn't everything, but like compared to last time, it was like last time they kind of just barely got the ask, which is to be included on internet, basically streaming stuff. And then we got this tiny percentage, which was like a toehold. This time it was like one of the big foundational things was uh, allowing writers rooms and stable writing seasons of employment to be a thing as opposed to they were kind of going away under the streaming model. They were getting chopped up into like two week gigs and stuff like that. And this puts back in place like multi-week guarantees for writers, minimum room sizes, um, uh, depending on the scale of it. And then that was one piece of it sort of structural in terms of job stability. And then uh, transparency of how much viewership you're getting because that's how residuals are triggered in terms of people having sustainable careers, they weren't willing to like reveal any of that. Is there a new residual structure as well? There is one. I don't quite understand it. It's, it's kind of, it's kind of opaque and it has different tiers, but there is some kind of agreement they, they figured out that has to do with like the metrics of, especially if something's a hit show, if it gets viewed a lot in the first 90 days, then there's more, more money is triggered and that sort of stuff. So I don't know if they're releasing the data or they're at least 
making it available in some form uh, to the Writers Guild, but it, it can be tracked now and payment is tracked to success again as, as they were trying to get away from. You know the way it used to be with advertising and ratings, so it's kind of back to that. And then finally on AI, AI there's, um, there's some fairly robust language in there about AI can really only be used in lieu of a writer if the writer is part of that and like signs off on that and wants that to be part of their creative process as opposed to they were trying to you know, shove us out the door and just completely put AI in as a writer or a first draft writer or something like that, which would kill a lot of jobs for people. So I think we sort of, I think also they saw that AI kind of sucked. <laughs> Regardless of whether or not it'll be able to do it in the future, it certainly isn't able to do it now. I think early on they thought, they thought like, well, this is going to be like the car factory robots. They'll just take over. And then like, cause it seemed there was that burst of excitement. I think last spring when everybody was getting chat GPT and, Doing stuff, and then people started seeing the limits of it, like during the course of the strike. And I think their studios are like, "Uh oh, yeah, that's not going to do it." <laughs> yeah, well, exactly. And I think that the AI issue, in a lot of ways, was what really drove the strike because you know, yeah, we were we were um, bickering about residuals and you know, writers' lengths of writers' rooms and sizes of writers' rooms. You know, that 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 kind of stuff needs to be argued about every few years. And sometimes it leads to a strike, but the AI was the kind of the fresh wrinkle. Yeah, and I, I think that you know, in a lot of ways, the uh, WGA took a took a stand. You know, took a really a stand. Uh, I wouldn't say her. I'm, I'm never going to say writers are heroes because I know yeah. I know <laughs> firsthand tough. from firsthand experience being one that, that we are not. <laughs> but it was a cool thing that that the WGA did, and they called attention to some some uh, you know potential problems and was were able to sort of stem the tide. You know, I, I gotta say, like, I really admire um, the, what the WGA did. You know, I think that, I think that this is a, from everything I've read about it, I think it's a good deal, you know? And, and if God willing, someday I'm ever in a position again, and same with you, we're ever in a position again to take advantage of the deal. I'm, I'm really glad it happened because, you know, it's going to benefit me in the long run if it benefits me. That has nothing to do. That's that's not the WGA can't you know ensure work. Well, that's another thing that I've been seeing too. Is like you know, there was the initial elation and the videos of the cheering and the, the and the unification, and then suddenly whining. Yeah, you know it's going to be it's interesting. It's going to be a, a the honeymoon is over at this point, and it's going to be a tough period because I mean honestly, because of the way the business was going, because of the money they lost during the strike, because of this huge unforced error of making it last so long. And also because of, in some ways, not really because of the payout, but they'll claim that there's going to be a contraction, I think. Yeah. Austerity, the pain of austerity. And, you know, and this happened to me the last time there was a Writers Guild strike. I mean, I don't, I don't think that, you know, my, my sitcom of Alternadad was ever really going to get made uh, by CBS. I think the odds of that are pretty small. But any, any chance that, uh, of, like, succeeding in Hollywood back then sort of evaporated as soon as the strike was over. And I think, and I, while, while that's not an issue for me personally at the moment, I think people are going to have similar um, disillusionments, I guess. Yeah. Things are going to get cut back. I mean, I think you can look at it in the big picture as like, you know, pruning a rotten tree back to like the healthy roots. And so it'll grow back on a more sustainable basis for everybody, but it's going to be pretty brutal right now for a bit. And everybody had such hopes and, a lot of the, they, they call them the pre-WGA, like people who are like aspiring to get in, who join the picket lines are going to, you know, find it. It's going to be hard to get, you know, hired because there's not going to be much hiring stuff in the short term. But, you know, I think by 2024, we're st we'll start to see like things coming back, but just not like right away. It'll be, it's going to be kind of a letdown for everybody. 
Yeah, well, that's the thing is like this, this sets the table, you know, this is really a strike for future years, not for right now. Like there, there are people whose development slates are going to be wiped clean and who are going to lose their deals. And uh, I, th- those are the people for whom I have the most sympathy because I, I have been there and it does suck, but you know, this business is brutal and evil. And, and at its best <laughs> on, on, on a good day. So yeah. let us not be fooled that, you know, this, this, this glorious moment of, of, of brief uh, communism uh, yeah. <laughs> is necessarily going to lead to a, a great future for everybody. But I do think that for people who do manage to, through a combination of talent or luck or, or both get into the stream of things, I think it's going to be really good for them. The Paris Commune is over. <laughs> yeah, here comes Napoleon, literally and figuratively. He's coming. Exactly. He's coming He's to coming. A, a screen near you, so at, and and probably to Hollywood as well. All right, Rob Cutter, thank you so much for um, getting on the lines for us and for covering uh, the strike for us. And now uh, we're going to have to find something else for you to do. Back to Star Wars coverage it is. Okie doke. Talk to you soon. All right, take care. Here at Book and Film Globe, we cover film festivals. We cover every film festival we can in recent weeks. We had correspondence at the Venice International Film Festival, at the Toronto International Film Festival. But most glamorous of all, now we are covering Fantastic Fest uh, in Austin, Texas. I attended Fantastic Fest because I live in Austin, Texas, and Pablo Gallaga also attended Fantastic Fest here in Austin. And he's here today to talk to me about what he saw and what we saw at Fantastic Fest. Hello, Pablo. Thanks for having me, Neil. Of course. So, yeah, this was my actually my first Fantastic Fest. I know that you've been many times. This is like its 13th year. I don't know if you've been all 13 years. I have not. I've been going since uh, 2015. I think I've only maybe missed it once in those uh, those years since. Now, I mean, this is more of a festival for you than it is for me because it's, you know, it's a very genre-based festival. And really really more of like a horror film festival than anything else. I know they have fantasy movies and they have, I don't know, they have a- action flicks and, and kind of, you know, odd, um, some sci-fi, but, uh, you know, horror is, I think, the sort of the main bread of, of Fantastic Fest, right? It is. It's, you know, they bill it as a genre film festival, and it's a bit of a misconception that it is very focused on horror. I think there's some good representation of action and sci-fi, uh, there used to be more animation. Um, comedy was really big this year, but yeah, horror tends to be you know the brunt of it. Yeah, that doesn't tend to uh, be my genre, so um, I, I kind of shied away from some of the less well-known films, I guess, and also because I knew I had you uh, in my back pocket, so I didn't have to go to everything. But let's talk about what I did see at the festival. I went to the opening night uh, to see the reboot of the Toxic Avenger, which is the sort of the iconic, the uh, signature trauma film from the 1980s. Um, is this trauma, they're very like low budget, Z grade, uh, you know, horror action comedies. And the Toxic Avenger is their, uh, their signature film. And, you know, I, they redid it. Uh, an Austin director named Macon Blair remade it. And he did it with kind of a, for a trauma, an A-list cast. I mean, the Toxic Avenger is played by Peter Dinklage, Villains are uh, Kevin Bacon and Elijah Wood. 
And I don't think it made a damn bit of difference. I, I mean, I personally, I, I thought that this thing was awful. <laughs> <laughs> I believe you said hot garbage, and I, I agree with that. It was just incredibly bad. Um, not to say that it didn't have some good satiric touches. You know, I, I thought that the, you know, the stuff where they were kind of making fun of the Proud Boys was was fairly clever. Um, some, but it was all kind of too rapid fire in a way. Like it, it didn't take any time to develop anything. And, you know, and, and the, and Peter Dinklage, while, you know, he is a great actor. I mean, there's only so much you could do with this material while encased in, inside this kind of weird uh, day glow makeup full of fake boils. Right. I mean, I'm, I'm not, I'm not kidding myself. Right. I know, I know the movie isn't supposed to be great, but I, I just, it really did not do it for me at all. It's one of those that kind of begs the question of why does it exist in the first place? Like trying to do in this cultural climate, something, the Toxic Avenger. I mean, I I grew up watching it in the 80s and 90s when I probably shouldn't. Sorry, mom and dad. I was very little when I watched these films. But it just seems like this isn't the right climate for what it should be. And it kind of pulled its punches a little bit, except for maybe like on the gore. Uh, it just didn't feel right for some reason. I think it was a little bit too sanitized, which is strange to say about the Toxic Avenger. Well, you know, and also, and I pointed this out in my review, you know, the Toxic Avenger... Uh, when it came out in 1984, comic books were alternative culture, right? So I kind of I feel like it fits in with stuff like Spawn and uh, the Watchmen as these sort of like meta commentaries or parodies of, of of comic books. And now you have the Boys, and uh, you know a, even a Boys spinoff series, and uh, you know shows like Invincible that kind of do all this sort of gore superhero parody stuff way better than the Toxic Avenger ever could. And so it just felt very tonally strange. There was nothing shocking about it. I think that's also where The Boys probably does the violence better. Like it catches you off guard in in ways you've never seen before. There were some moments in this that had that, but it was maybe once or twice and it was just, you know, you could kind of see it coming. You know, and they're just, it was just stupid. It was stupid and gross. And, and weird and it just it just really didn't work and I you know it's funny like I looked at Rotten Tomatoes and I was the only critic who gave it a negative review and I'm I'm thinking like come on people I know I know I know fan culture is is a big is pretty much what Fantastic Fest is about but let's uh let's try to have a little critical distance here you know I mean I think there's points for for even attempting I guess uh but yeah no I <laughs> I, I would rate it lowly I didn't enjoy it. Uh, well, I did, however, enjoy uh, the closing night film, which is called Totally Killer, and that is uh, debuting on Amazon Prime. You know, this as we talk, you know, within the next week, uh, and this is sort of a, a fun uh, take on time travel movies and slasher films. Slasher films. I mean, there's there's no hiding its DNA. It's basically like Scream combined with Back to the Future. Yeah, and it's uh, what really stands out to me about it is all the commentary from the Gen Z perspective, like seeing the 1980s through the eyes of a Gen Z kid. Yeah. Like that was, like the comedy of that is really great. Like the formula, of course, of just being like a like a slasher in the Back to the Future sense, uh, there's nothing special there, but the, the jokes are just nonstop and they're so good. Yeah, there's great, um, you know, the, the Kiernan Shipka plays our main character and she is, uh, she can carry a movie, you know? She, Sally Draper, and Sabrina the Teenage Witch can definitely carry a movie. She's very charming, has great screen presence. And, you know, but there are, there are a lot of great jokes. I mean, there's jokes about, like, how prevalent smoking was in the 80s uh, that really, really land. Also, I think all the observations about security 
uh, the lack of security. It's so lax. It was great. It was like it was. It was. I don't want to say it was surprising, but it was. It, it was. It was sharp. And you know, the the weed jokes were very funny. I you know, even as a reformed weed user myself, I, I found them to be. You know, they were pretty funny. And you know, just a lot. You know, and, and it, it didn't lean too heavily into making fun of the clothes or the hair. I loved how the um, the mean girls at the school were not called Heather's. They were called Molly's because they all dressed like Molly Ringwald. Yeah, and all the jokes about bullying, because, you know, that that clique was just very mean at all times. And that's obviously Gen Z has the issues with like how thin their skin can be. So that that just, those jokes really hit. The loose use of the term lesbo, <laughs> just appalled our modern modern girl. Really good. And yeah, and I also, you know, Kenneth Shipka was good. Also, I thought Olivia Pope, uh, who played her mother uh, in the past, Kenneth Shipka's mother in the past was also quite charming. Really, the whole cast was was really good and funny. Like there were, I mean, look, I mean, some of the some of the twists and turns were a little corny. I also thought, like, I found the slasher scenes themselves to be kind of gory, a little scary, and a little disturbing. You know, I was surprised by that. I didn't think they would go that far in something that was so like had such a pop sensibility and was uh, you know obviously meant for a wider audience. Uh, yeah, the, some of those slasher scenes were really really brutal. They were yeah brutal and hardcore, which is odd, kind of tonally odd. In a comedy, and but I think they were trying to um, they were trying to cater to the the DNA of uh, the slasher fan, you know, because this is this is in the end, it's like it's like a meta commentary on Scream, which itself is a meta commentary on slasher movies. So it, you know, maybe go a little too meta for its own good. But I thought that the '80s commentary, the time travel stuff, was a lot of fun. Yeah, and good uh, horror references as well. There is a Scream joke, and it, it that also lands very well. I think so too. So all right, so that's what I saw. At Fantastic Fest, I tried to get into some of the secret screenings, and I just could not, um, could not get. Uh, I just couldn't get the tickets. I try. I signed on at 10 a.m. like I was supposed to, and it was sold out by the time I clicked the button. But you saw a bunch of stuff, right? I think I saw 28 films in the stretch of Jesus. eight days. Yeah, uh, and that's actually kind of low for me. Sometimes I'm able to get into the 30s, but yeah, it's it's all a bit of a blur. But uh, the standouts for me. But you have a job. I mean, I, <laughs> that's my excuse. Like this is my job. <laughs> Uh, it's it's my vacation. That's that's why you re- really didn't hear from me during that time. I was, was treating it like a vacation. But I uh, take a vacation week. Yeah, I was able to take the whole time off. It's uh, I do it annually. And you go to the movies all day, every day. Yeah, for eight straight days. And yeah, it's it's worth it because I can tell you about things like uh, Emerald Fennel's new film, uh, Saltburn, was the standout for me, and that was the first secret screening. Uh, just uh, Barry Keegan, Rosamund Pike, uh, Jacob Elordi. Uh, I mean, you, if you think of Barry Keegan's performance back in Killing of a Sacred Deer, like this ups the ante on just how uncomfortable he can make you. And it was just, everyone was buzzing from it and couldn't stop talking about it. And yeah, I cannot wait for audience to see this one. Yeah, we, uh, we, we, had, uh, we talked about that a little bit. For, it, was, it was at some of the other festivals we talked about as well. So Saltburn, that's a, that's, that's a mainstream movie. Um, and it, they also screened the new Nicolas Cage, uh, Dream Scenario. Yeah, that was also good. Yeah, uh, also really good. And, um, you know, what you would expect with something that's a vehicle for Nicolas Cage. Um, you know, just uh, that well, that one's kind of surprising as well. It has a lot of good commentary on cancel culture. Uh, what about, was there anything sort of, I mean, those are both going to be mainstream sort of uh, award season movies. Was there anything, um, you know, kind of off kilter and very fantastic festy that, you know, isn't isn't going to be like have an Oscar campaign, but, you, but it was still kind of, 
you know, cool and fun. Yes, yes. And as I said before, uh, comedy was well represented this year. Uh, if if you've ever seen, did you ever see Beyond the Infinite Two Minutes? That was kind of a darling of the festival, not maybe last year, maybe two years ago, I think. Have you heard of that? I did not. I did not. Okay, so it is a theater group from Japan called Kikaku. And uh, that film back then was like a, like a really cerebral time travel comedy. It's only got about like a 70 minute runtime and everybody loved it. So their follow up this year, River, uh, was also kind of a time loop comedy, but they had bigger budget, they had sets built, and they added more actors beyond the you know typical group. Uh, just a really heartwarming story about this small inn in Japan that uh, gets trapped in a two-minute time loop, and as they're trying to figure out how to escape from it, they're trying to keep the guests of the hotel happy. And it's just it's off the wall and fun and ultimately has a lot of heart. So that's kind of off the beaten path, and I recommend both those films. That that sounds good. Uh, all right, and anything you don't recommend? Uh, I did not see this for myself, but the reaction to the new Pet Cemetery Bloodlines was, yeah, uh, people were not very impressed with that one. Um, there was a lot of promotion behind that. We don't need we don't need a Pet Cemetery cinematic universe. No, we don't. And I mean, th- this is a sequel to the remake, which in itself was kind of mid. It wasn't, you know, I, I thought that one was fine, but I picked something else in this slot because I had a feeling. And then everyone I know who saw it was like, yeah, it was not good. Well, okay. So real quick, let's talk about sort of Fantastic Fest as a whole. Um, it was, I mean, I, I enjoyed it. You know, it, was, it took place at the Alamo Draft House, South Lamar in Austin, which has been redone to really look a lot like the interior of the Overlook Hotel. In, in the shining I mean, there's now there's elevators there's a whole and there's a whole hal room from 2001 now and there you can actually pose with that the uh, axe from the shining and peek through a door and get 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 a selfie taken that way so i thought that was kind of an apt location for this film this festival because this is this is a pretty nerdy crowd pablo i gotta say oh it is i mean which is good which is fine i mean it's not like i don't fit in there and i'm sure you don't i'm sure you fit in as well but i was like wow this is like this is definitely like a fan festival. Like this is not, I mean, people, these people love movies, obviously, because they wouldn't be going to a film festival otherwise, but it was probably, probably nerdier than your average film festival. Yeah. And something that it's always kind of hung its hat on is it's supposed to be one of the more accessible festivals where you don't feel like you have to be a critic necessarily, or someone who's just like, you know, very into indie film. Like you can come in and watch a slasher. And that's, they make it accessible on the standby line for people to come in and get a ticket if, you know, a badge is out of reach for them. So yeah, it's, that remodel, I think was really, uh, you know, speaking to just the average film fan. Yeah. And people, people travel for this too. Like, it's not just, these are, I mean, there's a lot of Austin people who go every year like yourself, but there are definitely, there are definitely some out of towners. Oh, it's an international fest for sure. And it's, that's represented in the programming. Uh, It's not just the the industry people that are coming from out of the country. There's a lot of people who are just big fans of the fest and a film that come into Austin every year in September. Well, if you like weird genre uh, films and you like standing around waiting to see them in 95 degree heat, then uh, I highly recommend Austin's fantastic fest. Uh, I will definitely be going again next year. And it sounds like Pablo uh, is already in line. <laughs> You're already in line. Pablo Gallaga for for 2024. I am. Let chaos reign. All right. Thanks, Pablo. Thank you. Are you going to heaven? No. You gotta be a good person to go to heaven. So, 
we're the same. We can't go to heaven because you're not good. And I'm not a person. Our movie of the week is The Creator, directed by Gareth Edwards. It's a, uh, it's a sci-fi epic uh, about artificial intelligence, and it is what we call in the movie business a real piece of shit. <laughs> you know, it's funny, like, I look at the Rotten Tomatoes, uh, and I'm a Rotten Tomatoes uh, approved film critic, and it's got like you know, 60 something percent fresh rating, and like that is really fresh. That's high. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Right. And like 75 percent of the audience seems to like it, so there's this match. But I, you know, I, I was like, but Stephen Garrett obviously is here uh, to talk to me uh, about it. You know, he's also a, a man of Rotten Tomatoes. I only know two people on, on the planet who know more about film than I do. One, one of them is Martin Scorsese, and he's busy. Uh, promoting um, Killers of the Flower Moon. So I've got Stephen Garrett here. And, you know, uh, I, uh, some... weirdly, he liked the creator. He liked the creator. Oh, yeah. No, I'm just kidding. I, 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 uh, I don't know how he feels about the creator. I, I don't either. And I, I don't care. But uh, and we'll never know. Uh, we'll never know because he's got his own movie to promote. But, you know, we, we, uh, we someone commented when I posted my little mini review on Facebook that they've never seen Book and Film Globe give a one-star review to a movie. And it, Ooh. it is true. It is rare. I mean, I gave the Toxic Avenger reboot, which I talked about earlier in this episode with, uh, with Pablo Gallaga. I gave that two stars. And yet the creator gets one star. And so... This is a, you know what? I think I gave Venom one star. Yes, the the original Venom, not the sequel. The original Venom. Yeah. The sequel I gave like three. two or three, I think. I had fun. All right. Well, I, okay. Yeah, three. I'm looking back. Anyway. Let's talk about the creator, right? Because this is like a very ambitious film, right? I mean, it's a big movie. This is not some small indie film. This is a big movie with you know, relatively big name actors in it and, um, you know, a lot of special effects, a lot of world building. It's not, it's not a, not a cheap little film. Well, I mean, apparently by all the reports, you know, he did it for 80 million and it looks like it's 200 million. I mean, he, and, and he's a savant when it comes to, um, special effects and use of CGI and like, he was very kind of run and gun apparently in the way that he shot and then kind of retroactively did the CGI afterwards. And I don't know, there's very little green screen, impressively enough. Like, it's, it's, well, you know, the, wild. the visuals are not the worst thing about the movie. I mean, the ro it's a lot of robots, and yeah, some of them are they're great. Yeah, they're quite cool looking. They move really interestingly and they do interesting things. Um, but the real problem is with, well, there's, there's a lot of problems, but there's the story, which is, yeah god awfully stupid and then the the acting is insanely bad i thought <laughs> i actually like john david washington i still do i still like him Ugh. he's got a moody charisma i dig no no i ever he's just oh i liked him i liked him in tenet you didn't like tenet no he's got a very i, <laughs> I, I find his screen presence to be very uh very kind of bland and, and witless um, and, but but the re but his wasn't the worst. But there was a lot of him in the movie. And he's the protagonist. But the you know the worst performance of the movie belongs to Allison Janney as this. Oh my god, it's so weird. Yeah, as this like as this she basically plays the role of the angry um, antagonist in the Avatar movies. You know that. That's right. It's the same movie. It's basically Avatar, but with. <laughs> 
guess you're right. You know, it's, yeah, it totally is. You know, it's like there's a family and there's the hunting and then there's the won't we can't we just live leave the peaceful other alone and people are evil and all the Vietnam allegory. I'm like, I'm like, really, dude. It's like, come on. And then the mixed in with the Tibetan nonsense, you're just like, no, no, no. I kept. I, I think what blew my mind was watching a, a robot in human clothes riding a motorcycle. And I'm like, no, that just would never happen. Like, the ro why are robots wearing clothes if they're not around other human beings? Why are they even wearing clothes? Why do they need clothes? They don't need clothes. Never saw C-3PO in clothes. You know what I mean? Like, what, what are we talking about? Yeah, it's, it's clothes would be beneath C-3PO's programming. Yeah. <laughs> he doesn't have mandibles that move when he talks. He has a little slit in his mouth, and he's like, he's got a speaker behind that. That's, he's a robot. Or like ro robots watching porn or whatever there is. <laughs> oh, my God, right? What the hell was that scene? And it was like a blink and you miss it kind of thing. But I was like, is that dude stoned, and is he watching a hologram of some stripper robot? Like, did I dream that, or did that was that really in the movie? That was, right? You saw it. Yeah, absolutely. But, you know, also... What the hell? Uh, what the hell is right? And also, like, I mean, it really, like, you know, you're going to take a strong stance now against the U.S.'s involvement in Vietnam. What a... <laughs> Brave. What moral courage that, 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 that must require. <laughs> yeah, and, and, and then it's like... And then it's like... Also, like the bad the bad guys who are the U.S. Army who are against these peaceful Asian robots, essentially, like show up wherever they want, whenever they want. They seem to have like this omniscient Death Star in the sky. Yeah, and the the rest of the Earth is cool with that, apparently. No problem. It's the U.S. military uh, <laughs> with the Death Star, and 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 then uh, and then they're, they're hunting, you know, and it's like, oh God, another magical child. Oh, jeez, I know. The kid. And that, like, the power of the kid didn't even make any sense. What are you talking about? Okay, so the kid waves her little arms around, right, or, or little hands, and then whoop -de the, the energy goes out, the electricity goes out, but then it turns back on? Like, is it because she doesn't control it? Is she still developing it? Like, how is she a weapon? Why didn't she just, like, wave her arms at the sky and make Nomad, like, fall into the ocean? I don't understand. Right. Instead, instead she had living? to sit. Yeah, she, she had, had to sit. Some hologram? No. What? And she somehow knew where it was, and she ran to yeah, it. Exactly. I didn't even make that point. Thank you for pointing that out. Once they get to Nomad, apparently they know it back and forth. They don't even need any maps or blueprints. She just knows where. And she knows that she needs to sit in this weird hologram room where there's big globe, you know, spinning around of Earth. And then she just sits in it, and it's like she, like, covered the light and, and extinguished the hologram. And then that – I don't I don't even know. I don't understand how any of the powers work. And then that weird Doc Ock room, like, why the hell is he being attacked by tentacles? And then they suddenly disappear and don't attack him. Right. Like, what is happening the in this Tentacle movie? tentacles. Well, and the, yeah, and then there's also let, – let, let's not um, let's not sugarcoat the fact that then there's the um, the mom. You know, the, there's the, the fact that, like, oh, Jesus the Christ. family and the love interest and the and the reincarnation and, you know, all, all this, like, Buddhist claptrap. Not like Buddhism is claptrap, but like, you know. The <laughs> it is in this movie because it makes no sense because he's just romanticizing it and fetishizing it. Right. And it's like, you're right. It's like, it's kind of like uh, Blade Runner meets Kundun meets a bunch of other garbage. Well, Apocalypse Now. Uh, yeah. I mean, not garbage movies, but all, he makes garbage out of those them. Those are all great movies. <laughs> but and so I don't, I don't, you know, I to me, like the story didn't make any sense. I felt like it was the same beat over and over again. We got to get the kid out of here. Here comes the Death Star, gonna kill a million people, and then it does. And they're like, "Well, we still got to get the kid out of here." I'm like, 
Okay, but why why does the kid trust herself with Joshua? Why Joshua breaks into her weird vault where she's watching cartoons and then suddenly there's a big explosion and then she finds him and wants to hang out with him? Like why? He's her dad. No, but I mean what the hell? No, but he isn't. I mean, spoiler, I guess there is that plot twist that maybe kinda sorta he is. Also, incidentally, so he's married to Gemma Chan at the beginning of the movie, she's pregnant. And then, but he's actually an undercover agent, which she didn't know, and she feels betrayed. But then later, we find out that she's the actual designer of all these robots, and he didn't know that, even though they were married and living in a like a bungalow on the Thailand uh, like beach. Right, I know it's so stupid. He's like he's such a he's such a he's such a great undercover agent that he didn't know his <laughs> wife. His wife was the the, the I mean, it just was so stupid. And- the master designer of AI, like what? And then why did why the hell is she cloning herself? And why the hell was there a room full of Gemma Chans on Nomad? Like instant, like just there, like an extra room. I will say I wouldn't mo- personally would not mind a room full of <laughs> room full of Gemma Chan AI robots. Yeah. That sounds great. Per, but uh, but yeah, that aside, that's really stupid. Also, how does it take so little time to get from Los Angeles to Nepal? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> they seem to go. It, it, it's it's like they're taking. It's like they're taking the um, the Kawenga Pass. <laughs> so. Totally. This is what the movie is. It's all and also and what about this? Is like the two hour conversation in the bar after you see the movie, just being like, did that make sense to you? Didn't make sense to me. And then at some point, at some point, they show that Los Angeles was destroyed by a nuclear warhead. I mean, right. something you know. One could argue whether or not that's that's a good idea, but <laughs> but 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 you know, then it's sometimes so sometimes Los Angeles is shown as this wreck of a city, and then sometimes it's like this big new Los Angeles that's been totally you know retrofitted and, 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 and apparently irradiated, right? Like you know, five years later, LAX is up and running and sending people to the moon. What? Right, but but that's just a right. Oh yeah, I'm like, oh wait, we're going to the moon now. <laughs> And, and those shuttles are apparently, you know, but maybe those are the same supersonic shuttles that take people from um, L.A. to Kathmandu in, in five, in five minutes. Go. That's how they got there. Now you know. Now you know. The movie makes no sense. I don't understand. Why do people like it? It's not fun to watch. It's dreary. The music is awful. The, the acting is bad. I mean, yeah, there are there are some cool VFX. There's some cool robots super cool robots and effects and i guess that's enough for people maybe they'll get stoned and watch it and be like yeah this is cool frankly like the the you know the the, the i found the first five minutes uh, of the movie before john david washington appeared in the hazy beach flashback uh, those are my favorite moments uh, they, they showed some some wit and world building that the rest of the, the movie didn't really really have i know i know what a turkey you know, gobble gobble. I mean, I think it's a turkey, like uh, you know, uh, maybe not quite as bad as ba- like something like Battlefield Earth, um, you know. But it's like, but it's, it's definitely like, it's definitely like a high level uh, turkey. It's a pretty high level turkey. It's a big turd. Do you know what did you make of the uh, the ridiculous? I'll, you know, tipping my. I'm leading the witness. What did you think of the ridiculously stupid intertitles that had? unnecessary Chinese characters on them. Well, yeah, I don't know. It was just a, another excuse for my least favorite narrative device in movies, the flashback. <laughs> so after, after the screening, I bumped into a friend of mine who's uh, a critic uh, who's Indian-American, and he was with his friend who's Vietnamese-American, and I was like, guys, I hate to be a white guy here, but 
did the Asian stuff make sense to either of you? And they both were like, no, none of it made sense. He's just like, I was like, why were there all these Chinese characters? And, and like the Vietnamese woman was like, I don't know. Cause it, I guess it looks cool and futuristic. <laughs> like, you know, like nothing looks more cool and futuristic than depictions of the world's oldest language. <laughs> Give me a break. <laughs> it's fucking just Chinese. Anyway, this movie, the creator, look, I guess there's really no accounting for taste, but I guarantee a hundred percent that time will prove us right about the creator, Stephen. I'm like, I hate to rag on anything. It's a big swing. It's a turd, but I think you're right. Time will show. This will be forgotten very quickly. I love, uh, I love ragging on a big turd. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Thanks, Stephen Garrett. The creator is in theaters now and probably will be on streaming soon. Approach at your own risk. Some people seem to like it. We sure didn't. Also, thanks to Pablo, Ga Pablo Gallaga for covering Fantastic Fest for us. I also covered Fantastic Fest for us, but he was a little bit more enthusiastic about Fantastic Fest maybe than I was, and it was designed for him. I mean, the man literally takes a week off of work to go to the movies. That is dedication that you can't find in most places. And also thanks to Rob Kuttner for helping me celebrate the end of the WGA strike and hopefully a golden new age of Hollywood writing and writers. Daniel Cohen, RIP. We will miss him terribly here at Book and Film Globe. I am Neil Pollock. I am the editor-in-chief of Book and Film Globe, www.bookandfilmglobe.com. We continue to cover the worlds of books and film and streaming TV and so much more, and I will talk to you soon. Original Production.